Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Monday evening where we continue our reflections into Paul's second letter to the Church of Corinth. We are in chapter 9, and we are going to wrap up our reflection into chapter 9 with a reflection of not only the fruits of generosity, as we have been talking about generosity so much recently, but also the importance of the liturgy. Now, if you have read chapter 9 recently, you might be asking the question, why the liturgy? Because the word liturgy doesn't appear to be there yet. In verses 11 to 15, Paul is speaking explicitly to the liturgy as we begin to translate the Greek. So, some very important verses for us today, this evening, uh, especially as Christians and as Catholics, that we might get a stronghold on what the liturgy is all about. So we will hit the pause button this evening to reflect a little more with what the liturgy itself is all about in the light of what St. Paul says, not what Joe says or not what Father so-and-so says, but what St. Paul says and how St. Paul is bearing witness to the revelation of Jesus Christ and how the church has continued to bear witness to the revelation of Jesus Christ. So with that, if you have your Bibles out, if you can turn to chapter 9, 2 Corinthians 9, verses 11 to 15. You are being enriched in every way for all generosity, which through us produces thanksgiving to God. For the administration of this public service is not only supplying the needs of the holy ones, but is also overflowing in many acts of thanksgiving to God. Through the evidence of this service, you are glorifying God for your obedient confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution to them and to all others. While in prayer on your behalf, they long for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. All right, so Paul concludes his lengthy, we could say, exhortation on the collection by setting forth the fruits it will bear. Now, in addition to supplying material relief for the poor Christians in Jerusalem, it will also evoke their offering of what but praise and thanksgiving to God, as well as their prayers for the church in Corinth, huh? The Corinthians themselves, moreover, will glorify God through their generosity and their tangible expression of the unity of the church. So, before turning to the spiritual fruits of the collection, Paul summarizes the preceding passage, you are being enriched in every way for all generosity. He uses, my friends, the passive of enrich. Why? But to indicate that it is God who provides for the Corinthians. How many times have we talked about this divine passivity? And by speaking of divine passivity, what do we mean? But this call we have to receive the divine, 
to passively receive the divine that we might be more proactively living for God, right? So as Paul speaks to it, God generously enriches the community for their giving, for their generosity. Now, in the Greek here, Paul intends a further nuance. Recall that the fundamental meaning of generosity is singleness of mind and heart. Have we not been talking about this so much, not only within the context of generosity, but also within the context of what it means to be pure of heart? Remember the Greek there, hagnos, hagnos, to be pure, to be clean, to be modest, modest, to be chaste. Yes, it means all those things, but it more explicitly means without mixture or to be one thing or (laughs) to be single-hearted, to be single-minded for God, that your offering to God might be just not pure, but without being mixed with anything else. Okay, so single heart, single-mindedness, that is what purity is about, and that is the foundation of what it means to, to properly give, right? Because if you are constantly side-glancing at this or that, maybe it's a television program, maybe it's going shopping at the mall, whatever it might be, whatever might be preoccupying you, if we are preoccupied, if we are anxious, if we are worried about the things we cannot control, how can we properly give ourselves as God calls us to give ourselves? Okay? So we have this call to be pure so as to be properly generous, so as to give as God calls us to give. So Paul indicates then that God is richly blessing the Corinthians so that they can dedicate themselves with what? But a single-hearted devotion to the divine will. And of course, in this case, (laughs) contributing generously. Paul then introduces the topic of the next few verses, namely the fruits to be expected from the collection. He states that through us, the collection produces thanksgiving to God. So, Paul's great faith here is evident from the fact that he employs the present tense here and really throughout the remainder of the passage. That is, he writes as if the collection were already completed and its fruits were already being reaped. And in doing so, what does he express? But the confidence he has in God's power to bring the work to completion that he has already started. There's something going on here in this verse that is so important for us to reflect with. This idea that when we give, God produces something within us. And what does he produce? Thanksgiving to God. When we give ourselves to God, what's the fruit of that? But thanksgiving itself, right? Does this not bring us back to that tantamount definition of love? that definition that comes to us from St. Thomas Aquinas, to will the good of the other for the sake of other. And the idea here in principle is, the more you give, the more you receive, right? Because the more you empty yourself, then the more room you make for God. And the more room you make for God, the more you will give thanksgiving to God for how he continues to fill you up. You see how beautiful this is, my friends, and how rich this is. Now, Paul then employs worship imagery 
to describe the collection and further fruit. Some translations have the administration of this public service, but the administration of this public service does not capture the very rich liturgical sense of this phrase. The Greek word for administration here is diakonia, diakonia. Public service renders the Greek term liturgia, which also denotes worship activity. And in point of fact, the English word liturgy derives from it. We know elsewhere, Paul draws on this liturgical sense by referring to uh, his self-giving way of life as a sacrificial service in Philippians chapter 2, verse 17. And in Romans chapter 15, verse 16, he calls himself a minister, a minister of the liturgy, right? So here it is where I wanted to, as I noted off the top, to hit the pause button to reflect a little bit more with liturgy, because when you hear the phrase public service, you probably don't think of liturgy. But it's in discovering what's behind that phrase that we can begin to discover not only the genius of the liturgy, but I dare say, my friends, the genius of our Christian and Catholic faith. Huh? So the word liturgy, as it translates public service, it can also translate as public work or a service in the name of or on behalf of the people. Okay, now I don't know about you, but when I first read public work, I thought that to be awful strange. The liturgy is a public work. I thought it was a sacred work, a, a, a work behind closed doors. But no, in Christian tradition, it means essentially the participation of the people of God in the work of God. Through the liturgy, Christ, our Redeemer and High Priest, continues the work of our redemption in, with, and through His church. It is Christ's unconditional loving presence healing us, transforming us, unifying us, and granting us peace. It's interesting. When Christ says, this is my body, which will be given up for you, in the original text in the Greek, he is saying, this is my whole self, which will be given up for you, which means what? But Christ is giving his whole unconditional love to us that we might share and participate in a much more profound way in what? Unconditional love, right? Isn't that beautiful? That Christ gives us his body, blood, soul, and divinity that we might share and participate in the very inner life of God. What does 2 Peter 1.4 say? We are called to participate in the divine nature of Christ. What I'm talking about right now is absolutely 100% rooted in sacred scripture. Now, what I want to do ever so briefly is consider what the church means when she uses the phrase active participation. I get a lot of questions about this. Joe, what does it mean to actively participate in the Mass? Well, you can really only understand this if you understand that the liturgy itself is a public work. What do I mean? Well, as many of us know, the phrase active participation comes to us from uh, the Second Vatican Council, and while for some of us it might mean something external, 
a closer look reveals its true meaning. Break the word up. Part is the patient. Essentially, part is the patient refers to a principal action in which everyone has a what but part. Part to play, huh? In other words, we discover our doing, our part, to the degree that we understand the central action of God, or as it has been coined in Latin, the axioso that we participate in. And what is it that we actually participate in? But the oratio of the Eucharistic prayer. That is the solemn public speech of God in and through the priest. <laughs> Pay close attention to the words that the priest prays, especially in the Eucharistic prayer. So where does the word work come into play with all of this? Well, let us go back to the story of creation. What do we read in the story of creation? When God speaks, he is doing what? He is creating. And by creating, he is performing a what? A work. A work that brings about a new creation. Brothers and sisters, the uniqueness of the liturgy of the Eucharist is that it is God himself who is acting in and through human speech, in and through the priest, and we are drawn into that action. So, so important. I'm, I'm slapping my hands right now I, because I cannot emphasize enough how important this is because I think a lot of us get this backwards. We have a role to play as we enter into the Mass. But remember, God is the one speaking in through the priest, in and through the priest, and we are being drawn into that action. We are being drawn into that work, and when we are, we are becoming a what? New creation. Par excellence when we receive His body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist. I love the phrase that comes to us from the document on the liturgy from Vatican II, Sacrosanctum Concilium. It's the Constitution on the Liturgy, and it says this, and I just think this sums it up so beautifully. In the liturgy, divinity comes to humanity, and humanity is drawn into divinity. In the liturgy, the visible is directed and subordinated to the invisible. In the liturgy, Action is directed and subordinated to contemplation. The present world is directed and subordinated to that city yet to come. So, brothers and sisters, all those who see themselves as pilgrims are the city of the living God and never cease in moving towards that great city insofar as we what? Abide in the Eucharist, abide in the liturgy, abide in God's public work in which he is performing a new creation. God is acting. He is working. And that work is making us anew. Just by way of closing to this brief reflection on the liturgy, this is the liturgical document, Sacrosanctum Concilium. The liturgy builds up those who are in the church, making them into a holy temple a dwelling place for God in the Spirit to the mature measure in the fullness of Christ so that the church may be a sign to the world, gathering and calling all people into the one sheepfold. Amen? Amen. So, 
With that, let us return to what St. Paul was talking about and do so mindful of what the liturgy means. Paul speaks to this within the context of what but the collection. And he wants us to understand that the collection is paramount to an act of worship, that the collection is an essential part to the act of worship. And he does so because in addition to supplying the needs of the holy ones in the Jerusalem church, it will, what does he say? Overflow in many acts of thanksgiving to God. You see, my friends, the recipients will praise and thank God as the source of their blessing. As significant as facilitating human relief is for Paul, the fruit of rendering thanksgiving to God is even more important. So provocative what St. Paul wants us to see here. Indeed, his concern for praise and thanks to God is evident in this letter, and certainly we could say throughout his correspondence. All right, what about these verses, verses 13 to 15? Well, in addition to the Jerusalem Christians' thanksgiving to God, Paul informs the Corinthians that their participation in the collection will give glory to God, that their actual participation in the collection will give glory to God. And once more, he reveals to the community that the collection is a test of their character and their appropriation of the gospel. Now, it's interesting. Here we could ask the question, on what basis will they pass the test and thereby glorify God? Well, in the first place, by their obedient confession of the gospel of Christ. You see, my friends, the Corinthians will demonstrate their obedience to God by putting into practice the gospel imperative to offer relief to those in need. I mean, how many times have we said it? What does St. <laughs> Paul say? The love of money is the root of all evil. What is the one thing that Jesus Christ condemns again and again and again and again but the love of money? Remember that all-important phrase that Christ himself uses in the Sermon on Trust when he says, do not be worried or do not be anxious or do not be preoccupied about tomorrow. Trust in me, not in mammon. Now, we define mammon generally as riches, but the Aramaic actually translates as a reliance or trust in money. So Jesus there in the Sermon on the Mount, juxtaposes this trust we are called to have in God, trust is that most concrete act and virtue of faith, right? Versus the way in which we, have, we are all so inclined to trust in money, to trust in money. And when we put an over-reliance of trust upon money, it becomes the root of all evil, it drowns out our sense of reason and our appropriation, as St. Paul would say here, of the gospel. So it is that the basis for glorifying God here in these verses is the generosity, at least to the Corinthians, of their contribution. Now, while this rendering captures the economic aspect of the Corinthians' prospective gift, it doesn't convey necessarily the spiritual significance that Paul's phraseology attaches to it. I mean, consider that the Greek word for contribution, kononia, also translates as fellowship or communion. 
You see, my friends, Paul is indicating that God is glorified when we commit ourselves to promoting, by our contribution, the kononia, the fellowship of Jesus Christ, the communion of Jesus Christ, the coming together of Jesus Christ within the larger body of Christ. Paul is very intentional by employing this Greek because he wants us to see that when we give, from what we hold on to so dear, money, right? When we give of our money, we proclaim our solidarity with Christ. These are opportunities to not only become stronger in Christ, but to become closer with our fellow brother and sister in Christ. Today is Labor Day, and we are made to reflect not only on our labor, but also upon our gift. Not just because it's Labor Day, but of course, because the recent events, specifically Hurricane Harvey, Hurricane Harvey has wreaked havoc. Many people have lost a great deal. And so Jesus asks us a question. Where do you stand with the body of Christ? Are you willing to give for the body of Christ? Are you disposed to give for the greater body of Christ? This is an opportunity to not only give, but to do everything you can within your means, practically speaking, to be present to those who are in need. If you have a loved one in the Houston area or maybe the Lake Charles, Louisiana area, you might very well have found yourself in those areas. But if you don't, I think it is important we ask the question, God, what do you want me to do? Has God awakened your soul because of this natural disaster? People have lost a lifetime worth of things. And so it is important for us who cling to things to be mindful of those who are in need of the bare essentials. Less is always more. Where can you go with less in your life that you might be able to give more to those who are in need? And and let me say, I'm looking at the mirror in this, and my wife and I have been talking about this, asking our good Lord, what do you want us to do? Are we disposed? Are we ready? Do we see this as an opportunity to encounter our brothers and sisters in Christ and experience that interpersonal communion, experience that virtue of togetherness, that virtue of fellowship, that virtue of being in communion with one another? And when we do that, how we share in the greater glory of God. Amen. So yeah, there's a rich spirituality, we could say. Now, Paul concludes chapter 9 with an exclamation of gratitude. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Here again, the word, the Greek word for thanks is charis. Fittingly here, he employs charis, thanks, one last time as he brings all of chapter 8 and 9 full circle. What began with God's self-giving love now returns to him in a chorus of gratitude. And Paul offers here yet another clue that he understands the collection within the context of redemption. You see, my friends, the reason for gratitude is God's indescribable gift. When Paul uses uh, doria, which is the Greek for gift, he indicates God's work of redemption accomplished through Christ Jesus. The apostle, therefore, offers thanksgiving to God first and foremost for the gift of salvation. 
the gift of reconciliation effected through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He believes and wants the Corinthians to appreciate that the collection is an expression of this divine gift. The doria, huh? That Greek word for gift, where we can come to understand the uniformity of that when we give, we are sharing in God's great work of redemption. Imagine what you do for your brothers and sisters in Christ, specifically to Hurricane Harvey, when you give to them what they are in need of. In the material sense, yes, for sure, but also in the spiritual sense, that our brothers and sisters in Christ who are alone no longer feel alone. The greatest tragedy here on earth, I believe in my heart, is isolation, loneliness. It is a cancer. And I'm really only echoing St. Teresa of Calcutta, who says the great cancer of the West is loneliness, the absence of love. Benedict XVI says the same. So let us charge forward with a deeper understanding of what it means to give, yes, in our collection baskets, but also on a much deeper level, how what we give is a proclamation of our solidarity with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And how important is this, this Labor Day? Gosh, what a gift that we might be reflecting into this very subject matter on Labor Day, in the light, of course, of Hurricane Harvey. We work, we toil, we struggle, we labor. And as we do so and provide for our families, we ask the question, God, how might you ask me to give more? That I might express my solidarity with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen? Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen? And God bless you.